Hello, welcome to Small Findings. I'm Jim Kang. I'm an artist and software developer. I've recently started taking notes fairly aggressively in order to absorb more of the information I come across. Sometimes when you look closely at a piece of content or a real life event, there's actually nothing to learn. But sometimes you find things out. In this podcast, I share those things with you. This week's findings include the hardest part of making a pizza, what share repurchasing is and why it matters, Amazon's dealings with labor, how Testament records an album, and the concept of existential risk. All right, on to the findings. Last Saturday, I made the best pizzas I've ever made. There are two things that make or break a pizza. First, there's the crust. Putting on sauce and toppings isn't something that's easy to mess up, nor is it something you can excel at. That's not the case with baking the crust, though. First, you have to pick the ingredient mix. I think I got that down well enough for our tastes, which I talked about in episode one. Then, you have to mix the dough and let it prove. Proving, a term I learned from the Great British Bake Off, is letting the yeast act to expand the dough by creating air within it. I've usually erred on the side of too little proving, yielding a dough that's a bit too dense. This time, I let it sit for a full two hours, and it reached the right amount of airiness, and it looked huge, which was very satisfying. You have to stretch the dough out into the form of the pizza crust after that. I've tried a combination of hand tossing and hand stretching, because that's the real way of true pizza makers. However, that's always gotten me regular shapes, and worse, the wrong thickness. Crust rises as it bakes, and thin-looking dough yields much thicker pizza crust in actuality. Based on the advice of my internet friend Wayne, I used a rolling pin this time. The crust got thin, and they were much bigger area-wise, and thus held a lot more topping. And when they came out, they, um, they were thicker and they felt slightly thicker than a pizza that you'd get at a pizza restaurant. The other outsized factor in pizza excellence is the deployment of the pizza to the oven. So you've assembled the pizza. The dough, the sauce, and the cheese, and the toppings are sitting on some well-floured surface like a big cutting board or a metal tray. Your baking steel or pizza oven is in the oven and heated up to be extra hot and ready to cook a pizza in five minutes. So, you just put it in there, right? Sadly, no. Even with lots of flour, the pizza will stick to the surface to a degree. It's not just going to slide right off. If you use a flipper, and a flipper flipper is the proper term for the utensil commonly called a spatula, and try to shove it in, the pizza will crumple. You end up needing to slide the far end of the pizza off first so that it hits the steel, and then you hope that it starts to stick so that you could pull the rest of it off. And you use the flipper to de-stick the rest of the pizza from your carrying surface, and then you just move your carrying surface out. The rest of making the pizza is really peaceful. 
The part where you deploy the pizza creates great stress, and I'm somehow always surprised by it. You have to unstick a floppy thing from a surface inside of an extremely hot appliance. I got a slight burn on my hand, which is all fine now, as a result of panicking when one of the pizzas started to fold in on itself. I've also tried assembling the pizza on the pizza peel, and you'd think that would help, but it, it doesn't. So the pizza peel, if you don't know what it is, is a big wooden paddle-shaped board that you see in a lot of pizzeria iconography. Again, even with plenty of flour or oil on it, it's just as hard to slide the raw pizza into the oven. The peel, however, is great at peeling the pizza off of the baking surface and taking it out of the oven. I used to try to do this with two big flippers, and that was also stressful. My friend Aria told me about a tool that looks promising, though. It's called the Super Peel, and it uses a slider and a nonstick surface and a cloth and all sorts of stuff to explicitly aid in getting the pizza off the peel. I'm glad that they personally attested to it because uh, this is a lot of promises, and devices that make a lot of promises always seem like quasi-scams. And Wayne, the pizza master guy I know, also uses it. Unfortunately, it's not available from any sellers except Amazon right now, so I'll have to wait. In the meantime, I'll try to use cornmeal as a surface lubricant, which is the traditional thing that pizza folks use to help with getting the pizza off the board or thing into the oven. Recently, people have called to disallow large companies that receive money from the coronavirus stimulus package from doing stock buybacks. I've heard this, and I doubted it would happen because the Trump administration isn't going to make any effort to make this money go to those who need it. They've turned this into something of a slush fund. However, I didn't actually know what stock buybacks were, so I took to Wikipedia. I mean, by looking at the name, you can guess what they are mechanically. It's when a company reacquires its own stock. Formally, this is called share repurchasing. But what is the effect of this? Repurchasing shares reduces the number of shares held by the public, so earnings per share increase. But not only that, share purchasing is not that different from insider trading. Insiders are restricted in regard to buying and selling the stock of the companies they work for because they have inside knowledge that makes trades with those outside of the company unfair. Let's imagine I work for a gold mining company, and I just find out that the mine is out of gold. Without any insider trading restrictions, I can just sell my stock to you, a person who does not work for the gold mining company, and I can sell it at an inflated price. Um, and a few days later, when news gets out about the mine, your stock will have crashed. So that's why there are insider trading restrictions. However, share repurchasing doesn't have those restrictions. And yet, the people doing the repurchase are insiders by definition. They're people who work for the company. And the sellers on the other side of the transaction are the public, who are outsiders. Back to our imaginary gold mining scenario, let's say I know that we found another big thing of gold in the gold mine. Then, our gold mining company has this information, and it advantages us in a stock trade with outsiders. But 
insider trading restrictions keep us from buying the stock from outsiders at a price that's a bargain for us. But it only stops us as individuals who work for the company. But there's nothing to stop us from doing a stock buyback as a company. So the gold mining company then, let's imagine, buys back stock from outsiders. And these outsiders have no idea that extra gold was found. Then days later, the news gets out and the share value increases and the people who sold just had no no idea of knowing that would happen. Um, Certainly they didn't have as fair of a chance as the person, the people inside the company. So the people inside of the company uh, get richer. Another thing we might want to think about is which insiders benefit the most. So all the insiders benefit, but those with the most shares benefit the most. And if you ever worked at a publicly traded company, you may have noticed that those at the top of the pyramid hold significantly more shares than those at the base. Uh, Usually the higher up you go, the more shares you have. So if a company gets coronavirus stimulus money and then repurchases its own shares, they're basically using that money to increase the value of the holdings of the executives more than anything else. It's basically a fancy way to give money to the executives of that company. An article in the New York Times from March 27th pointed out that many companies receiving coronavirus stimulus money, which I talked about in episodes one and two, have recently engaged in share repurchasing. For example, Booking.com, which is the parent company of Priceline, OpenTable, and some other companies, bought back stock between the years of 2011 and 2019. In 2019 alone, they spent $7.5 billion on stock buybacks. $7.5 billion. Their sales have plummeted in the last few months, and they'll get a bailout. If they hadn't made the share repurchases so that they could make themselves, mostly their executives, as we've talked about, richer, they could have had at least $7.5 billion dollars to get through this. Disney, Marriott, American, Delta, Southwest, United, Carnival, Hyatt, and Hilton all spent at least a billion dollars on share purchasing in the past nine years. Many of them have spent far more than a billion dollars. The executives that chiefly benefited from this will not return their financial gains from those repurchases in order to get these bailouts. You may have heard that Amazon does not like unions, so much so that they use a heat map to track which Whole Foods stores are at risk of unionizing. It's not a literal heat map, but one that maps a whole bunch of values. Values such as distance to the closest union, number of charges filed with the NLRB, organizing, quote, incidents, Percentage of families in the zip code that fall below the poverty line, the local unemployment rate, diversity index, um, and that measures racial and ethnic diversity. Interestingly, lower diversity correlates with a higher risk of unionization. Total store sales, and here, uh, again, counterintuitively to me, higher sales correlate with a higher risk of unionization. It tracks this because it wants to suppress worker organization. 
It has a long history of suppressing organizing workers. Recently, a warehouse worker named Chris Smalls helped to organize a tiny strike. In my opinion, tiny. It was a one-day walkout on March 30th. It was in protest of Amazon forcing workers to work in close quarters in a facility in which at least 10 employees had been infected. That was according to the employees, whereas Amazon only said there was one. Derek Palmer said, The goal is to get that building shut down, and they will shut it down because no packages, nothing, gets out, that, gets out the building without associates. And he, he worked at a facility known as JFK 8 for four and a half years. He, he went on, this is a pandemic. People are literally losing their lives because of this virus. And Amazon is not taking this seriously. They're not giving us our respect that we demand. We're not going to ask for it. We're going to demand it because at the end of the day, we're the heart and soul of that building, not the managers. They're back in the office. We're in the front lines working. Contrast this with Amazon's response nearly a month earlier to an incident in a Seattle office, oddly enough, named Brazil. A white-collar worker got infected with coronavirus. They told the white-collar workers to stay home if they experienced any symptoms and said in their message that your health is our top priority and we're continuing with enhanced deep cleaning and sanitization in the office. No, no walkout was necessary here. Amazon fired Smalls, then organized a smear campaign against him. They decided that because they didn't think he was articulate, they could get the upper hand by making the entire issue about him instead of um, them forcing workers to work under extremely dangerous conditions that they would never work in themselves. They had two senior vice presidents attack him on Twitter. And then they tried to think of counter PR moves, for example, there was a note released where they said, oh, another idea for giving masks away, give 1,000 masks to every police station in the country. Because like, basically anything was preferable to just shutting down a warehouse facility in order to clean it. Back to Amazon surveillance and tracking of labor. In 2019, an Amazon warehouse worker named Billy Foister went to the company's health center called Amcare and reported headaches and chest pains. He was given two beverages to drink and sent back to work. A couple of weeks later, he put a product in the wrong bin. Within two minutes, management saw it on camera and came out to talk to him about it. A couple of days after that, he had a heart attack. He fell and was on the floor for 20 minutes and didn't get any help during that time. A worker from a nearby department saw him and called for help. After watching a coworker die, Workers were ordered back to work immediately after that. Amazon PR, however, was quick to point out that the death technically did not happen on their grounds. Here's what they said. The passing of the employee did not occur at the facility. The employee experienced a personal medical issue, parentheses heart attack, and lost consciousness. Several trained team members quickly responded and administered uh, CPR and AED, until local emergency responders arrived within minutes and took over. The employee was then transported to a local hospital for further treatment, where he was later pronounced deceased. Let's remember that when they say minutes, they actually mean 20 minutes. 
This is one incident, but with pressure on labor this high and negligence of safety and basic decency by management also high, it's no surprise that the serious injury rate at Amazon warehouses is more than double the industry average. The thrash metal band Testament recently released a new album. It's too fresh to say for certain, but I think it might be my favorite Testament album. This is interesting because Testament has been around for 35 years. Most metal bands, and possibly most bands, put out their best albums in their first 10 years. I think it's really hard to come up with an entire album of original and good music, much less five of them. Beyond that, it just doesn't seem possible without quitting and restarting as some entirely different entity. Testament showed up too late to be thrash metal pioneers, unlike, say, Slayer. However, while I revere Slayer's first five albums and Haunting the Chapel, on everything they did after that, they sound like their souls quit. In contrast, I never really got into Testament's albums from the 20th century, but I really like their albums from this millennium. This is a testament to sticking to stuff you like long after the geniuses for whom things come easily have burned out on it. Amazing stuff can happen if you keep going, I think. I'm personally more of a testament than a slayer myself, and I think that's the case for most of us. This is why it was interesting to hear them talk about how they recorded their new album, Titans of Creation. I assumed, because they're old school, that they old schooled it all the way. They practiced together five nights a week for a month, like Cannibal Corpse and Crisian do, and they got all the songs tight and they went into the studio to put them to tape. Apparently, they actually all work remotely. All of the members are a minimum of two hours away from each other, and they're also on opposite coasts. So what they do is they email each other wave files and dry guitar signal parts, and then they discuss them. Then they get together in the studio for about a month. There, the vocals are written, and many of the arrangements are written. Then they re-record all the instrumental parts and put them together digitally. It's an, it's an interesting counterpoint to Blood Incantations process. They're a fairly new school death metal band, but they work in this way in which they rehearse everything together regularly and they record everything analog, which makes it hard for them to punch in and do the kind of easy edits you can do with Pro Tools. And it forces to, them to get things to be fairly tight and natural. However, Testament made five albums in five years in the 80s with analog recording, and they've done an insane amount of touring uh, in the decades since then. So they have a musical cohesiveness and unity that a band like Blood Incantation can't possibly have gotten in the short, time amount, short amount of time that they've been around. I think they've already internalized the kind of feel that Blood Incantation is trying to force themselves to develop by issuing digital editing.
a transcript of a talk by Toby Ord about existential risk. He works at the same department at Oxford that published Global Catastrophic Risks, a book that I got mostly because it has a lot of information about the far, far future, in which protons decay and all matter begins to behave like liquid. But the other papers in it about near-term dangers to humanity are mostly good also. Ord makes the point that the past of humanity is 200,000 years long, but the future could be in the millions. That potential is what we're risking when we risk ending humanity. There is a 1% chance of ending humanity in the 20th century, according to Toby Ord. And a poll among academic experts on various global catastrophic risks gave a median 19% probability that the human race will be extinct by the year 2100. To me, a guy that has seen many poker opponents complete a flush on the river, that's, that's an incredibly high chance. That's, that's like nearly one in five. He went on to make the point that humans tend to base their big decisions on the next four years or less. These decisions affect the entire future, which is millions of years. So they should probably base it on more years than four. And this is possibly because of election cycles. Ord also made the point that losing everyone is far worse than losing most people because the entire future is lost when you lose all people. Now, somehow it's not that comforting to say, well, you know, at least we got to the point where we only lost 99% of people, but um, the, the point does make sense. As a side note, I found it interesting that he mentioned that nuclear winter would drop temperatures 10 degrees Celsius in the middle of the continents, but less on the coasts. So, uh, if the missiles start flying, try to try to get to the coasts. It's not going to be as bad, but honestly, pretty bad. Existential risk also includes things that end human progress and the possibility of happiness for most people. Um, so, for example, permanent dystopias are uh, an example of that. That's basically the end. Because of technology, dystopias tend to be permanent. They're not going to be reversible because you could have a grip on all people at this point. Whereas, you know, there are many holes in like the kind of dictatorship you could have like in the 1100s or something like that. So he also said, this is a, a good quote, we can't wait until things are emotionally resonant because we all remember the catastrophe. We have to think ahead. I can't say I feel optimistic about this as a group. Humanity has a hard time learning from things that it hasn't experienced directly. For example, productions like Glass-Steagall were created after the stock market crash of 1929 during the Great Depression. Sorry if you hear that. That is my son. He is in bed. He is singing. Anyway, yeah, protections like Glass-Steagall were created uh, to prevent new... Great Depressions. But by the time we hit the 90s, we got rid of it. Then we had a banking liquidity crisis in 2008, uh, in which many people lost their jobs. Unfortunately, once you experience extinction, oh. 
Unfortunately, once you experience extinction, you can't learn it. For, you can't learn from it to avoid it the next time, because because you're dead. You're all dead. So Ord is working on ways to get people to think ahead. Mostly, he seems to be about measuring the utility of lowering risk. He also suggests having parts of governments devoted to the long term, to represent the people of the future who aren't there to vote. I think we might have to first answer the more basic question: How can we get people to care about people that live after they're dead? And that's it for this episode. Do you want to say a thing about this podcast? Do you have a small finding to share? If so, email it to smallfindings at fastmail.com. Thanks for listening.